Good morning. Does everybody have enough to eat Thursday? Happy Thanksgiving weekend. All righty, let's go ahead and begin uh, with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. And this Thanksgiving weekend here in America, we want to especially thank you for the blessings you provided, uh, the, the truth that you've provided through your Son, the, the, the remedy for our, our condition of sin, the, the pathway back into an eternal uh, glory of love with you. And we pray that we will participate in your plan, uh, be witnesses for your kingdom, and that uh, we can see you coming soon. Bless us as we study today that our minds will be drawn together towards you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing uh, lesson number 11 in our quarterly, The Gospel in Galatians, and the title this week is Freedom in Christ. And the first paragraph in uh, Sabbath's lesson says the following. In Galatians 2.4, Paul briefly referred to the importance of protecting the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. But what does Paul mean when he speaks about freedom, which, is, which he so often does? What does this freedom include? How far does this freedom go? Does it have any limits? And what connection does does freedom in Christ have to the law? So, what do you understand freedom in Christ to be? What are we free to do? A lot of times they say that that Christ nailed those ordinances and that we were free from them, not the commandments. Like circumcision, as it was saying. Circumcision, which we're going to get to in a few minutes, yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. I think there's another questions that need to be answered before you can answer that question. Which is? What is the problem? What, what is, is the problem? It started in the great controversy. Oh, I like that. Okay. Let's see if we can uncover that as we go along. We have freedom in Christ because the truth has been revealed, and the truth shall set you free, and the freedom is because we know the truth. Ah. Let's see if we can't put these pieces together. Linda. You have the everything that we have in life now is generally addictions and codependencies and all sorts of imbalances. And for me, it's being set free from the imbalances of a self-centered life. So you mentioned addiction. So are we free in Christ to smoke? Are we free to drink? To do drugs? To eat gluttonously? All right, I'm meddling now, right? Okay. To, uh, to commit adultery. To, are we free to hate people who are different from us? Free to be bigots, racists, sexists, elitists. Free to believe in a God who is punitive and wrathful. Are we free to reject the idea of God altogether? Hmm. Do we have the freedom to do all these things? What's the problem of exercising our freedoms in these ways? And why, if we exercise our freedoms in these ways, are we no longer free in Christ? They're not profitable, right? They're not profitable, but profitable, okay, but why, if we exercise our freedom to do any of these things, which we have the freedom to do, are we no longer free in Christ? Because it places you in a bondage of sin. Thank you. Because we actually, by exercising our freedom this way, we enslave ourselves. We lose our freedoms by our free will choice. So, uh, for instance, we become a slave to drugs or to nicotine or to alcohol. We're enslaved. We're addicted to that. We lose our health if we overeat or eat an unhealthy lifestyle. We lose our health. And as we lose our health, we get heart disease or we get lung disease if we smoke or we get obesity. We, we're, we're less free to exercise 
to walk, to ski, to climb, to help around the house, to minister to others. Um, we become uh, more at risk for health diseases, so we end up being served rather than serving others as people take care of us. We become enslaved in our minds to distorted concepts such as racial concepts or or uh, sexist concepts and these types of things. And, and we're not as free to love other people by our biases and bigotries. So we're enslaved by, in our minds. Or we're enslaved and imprisoned by distorted God concepts. And we can't conce- present God correctly. So while we have the freedom to go down any of these paths, every one of these paths inherently brings with it some form of entrapment, enslavement. Yes, that's all hand. Yes. Uh, I re- when I was younger, Christian, I read that uh, Jesus said, uh, whatever a man put in his mouth, it can't defile him to proceed out of his mouth. And I misunderstood it at first, you know, because it really my own inclination was leading me to, through it. But we can uh, also, uh, you know, misinterpret, I could say, uh, scripture where it will lead you to also, you know, doing some of the things that you think that are, that is your liberty, but it's not. Exactly. No, well, yeah, exactly. So in Christ, when we come to Christ, do we come to Christ in a, in a free state or we come to Christ enslaved to something? Enslaved. And so Christ sets us free. So in Christ, through his grace, there's work in our hearts, through his power, we can experience freedom from our addictions. If you ever read the 12 steps, if you're not familiar with the 12 steps, the 12 steps of all the 12-step programs are the 12 steps of conversion taken right out of Scripture. Step one, we admit that we are powerless over drugs and alcohol and our lives uh, have become unmanageable. Step one, I admit that my life is as out of control with sin. Step two, we believe a power higher than ourselves can restore us to sanity. I believe God can heal and transform me. In other words, the first step to any type of victory over sin is to recognize that you can't do it yourself. Second step, recognize God can do it for and in you. And then you just go up the steps of searching moral inventory and, and all these things that, that are in the process of transformation and healing our hearts from sin. That's what the 12 steps are all about. So when we give ourselves to Christ, in Christ are we free to give ourselves to bless other people? Are we free to give our time, our money, our ingenuity, our energy to promote the truth about God, to love others, in other words? Yeah, that's real freedom. And what happens if we exercise our freedoms down that path to do those things? Well, you know what the actual natural outcome of doing that is? More freedom. More health. More autonomy. More. Yes? I keep going back to the fact that there's limits to any kind of freedom, no matter what we're talking. Since we're talking about Christ, I'll leave it at that. But if you look at any other guideline, there's limits to those guidelines or those freedoms you do it in Christ, yes, but people seem to get hung up on what they can't do, not what they can do. I, I like that positive spin, but I think you're right. Much of the time in religions, we look at the thou shalt nots, thou shalt nots, rather than thou shalt. Okay, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. <laughs> okay, yes? You know, if you look at it, you only have ten rules to live by anyway. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that question as the lesson goes on. That's, that's a good one. Um, hopefully we will get to that one. So the second paragraph says the following. It says, Paul addresses 
these questions by warning the Galatians of two dangers. The first is legalism. Paul's opponents in Galatia were so caught up in trying to earn God's favor through their behavior that they lost sight of the liberating nature of Christ's work, of the salvation that they already had in Christ through faith. The second threat is the tendency to abuse the freedom Christ has obtained for us by lapsing into licentiousness. Those who hold this view mistakenly assume that freedom is antithetical to the law. So, the lesson points out two dangers. Legalism, which it defines as trying to earn God's favor through works, and abusing our freedoms in Christ by becoming licentious. Which means, of course, wild and hedonistic living. Is one who lives a licentious life actually free in Christ? No. No, we just went through that. They're not free. How could one, though, mistakenly believe... I mean, what kind of ideas must be in operation for a person to believe that they can be free in Christ while living a licentious life? It's a once-saved, always-saved concept. Oh, he said that's a once-saved, always-saved concept, which stems from what kind of an idea of the sin problem? That it's a legal problem. Yeah. See, when you believe sin is a legal problem, which is taught in the Dark Ages then you can pay the legal debt. You can either do penance, you can do um, um, indulgences, you can have Christ's blood pay it in your behalf. You can do lots of things to pay the authority of the governor, the ruler. The ruler can pay your debt, you see. And when my debt's paid, well, I don't actually have to live differently because all my sins, past, present, and future, have been paid by Christ at the cross. And I accept that payment, you see. So now I'm free. I'm free from the penalty. I'm free from the punishment. I'm free from the condemnation. So I can live because he's already taken it all on him. God has punished him in my place. So I don't have to be punished because I've got his name stamped by my record books in heaven. This whole penal substitution idea leads to a hedonistic lifestyle for some. For some. We can read things in the Bible. For instance, I can do all things, but you have to add on the rest. I can do all things. Through Christ. Through Christ, who strengthens me. It could also be like a vaccine, right? A vaccine. What do you mean by a vaccine? Well, once you get the vaccine, you don't get sick of that disease anymore. It's ah. kind of the same thing as one save, always save. Just bring that to... If you're actually talking about having the vaccine applied to your character, your mind, your heart, rather than to a book external to yourself. And then I don't need to worry about the disease because I've been vaccinated. Right. So I like this idea of the vaccine, but again, where do vaccines get applied? To your medical record? Or do they get applied to you? Come on now. Okay. <laughs> right? It's almost like when you get medicine and you start to feel better, but you don't take it. It says take it for 10 days and you take it for three. Right. You know, you got to finish the process. You know, because it says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. So you have a continual process you have to keep on. Oh, I like this. I like this very much because you know what happens when you're sick and you take a vaccine or you take a medicine, the vaccine, medicine, or remedy is applied into the person who's sick. Mm -hmm. But the medical records will record the disease and the medical records will record the application of the remedy. It's up to you to apply. But the actual transformation and healing is actually happening in the sick one. It's not actually happening in a record book. Mm -hmm. Same thing with our heavenly records. The heavenly records are a record of your condition, of your character. When you accept Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in, reproduces with you, Christ's likeness, and the records are simply recording constantly the transforming process that actually is actually happening in you. 
What happens, though, is that when we substitute a different model, then all of a sudden it's not about transforming us, it's about getting the records erased out of the books of heaven. Hmm. Have you ever heard that? Think about that. You, doctor's coming in to examine you because you're really sick at the hospital. You don't know what's wrong, but the doctor will know and he'll be able to fix you. But before he gets there, you're so worried about it, you had the nurse erase all the record of the r- symptoms you've been suffering with. So the doctor won't have the records to look at when he comes. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, this is kind of the thing, you know, the, the, the idea that some people get. If I erase it out of the records, I've erased it from me. It's not the same. Isn't Christ the key to freeing us from the enslavement of Satan? Yes, of course Christ is the key to freeing us from the enslavement. But you say the enslavement of Satan. If Satan were destroyed today and all his angels with him, they're gone. They're no longer in existence anywhere in the universe. Does sin stop on planet Earth? No. Are we actually enslaved to Satan? Think about that, because we're going to answer the question. What are we actually enslaved to? The things that keep us from living freely, we already mentioned one, which is a like a once saved, always saved type theological construct. How about this? You ever heard this? When we accept Christ, we don't stop sinning. You ever heard that? Well, we sin all the way up until Christ comes. How many have been taught that? How many believe that? If you believe that you continue to live in sin until Christ comes, if that's your belief, will you have the expectation, even try, even participate with Christ for victory over sin in your life? No, no you just accept, well, he, I accept it in faith that, that I'm saved, and then I don't live a victorious life because we know we can't live a victorious story over sin. We're going to sin all the way up until Christ comes. Oh, you're a perfectionist, aren't you, Dr. Jennings? <laughs> well, I do believe in perfect healing. When you go to the doctor, you say, doctor, I only want to be about 35% well. Only heal me 75% of the way. How, how far do you want to be healed by the doctor? Partially or perfectly? Where's the pressure? On the doctor. Christ is our perfection. The Holy Spirit perfects us. We don't perfect ourselves. But if you don't believe that, you, that, that, that perfecting of your heart and mind is possible by God working in you, then you won't ever expect it. You won't participate in it. You won't practice it. You won't anticipate it. You won't follow his prescription. Why should I follow his prescription? It's not going to work anyway. I'm going to keep sinning right up till Christ comes. It does two things, though. That'll discourage someone that's trying, but then also have someone that doesn't want to try. Give them the encouragement not to try. Exactly. Yeah. Do we understand the true nature of God's universe, that his law is the law of love, that he constructed his universe to operate upon, And freedom only exists in harmony with his design. A life united with Christ who, through the Spirit, reproduces such motives in our hearts. Then we understand that true freedom only happens when we have a radical heart motive transformation. That we don't operate anymore from this motivation of I need to save self, I need to watch out for me, I need to protect me. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Or as Revelation 12 says about those ready to meet Christ, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. I love this quote because it's so revealing if you think about the meaning. They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. What are they not doing? They're not trying to save themselves. Survival of the fittest, watch out for me, is gone. Greater love has no man that he 
give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for each other. Some radical change of heart has happened. Yeah, well, Christ could do that, but the rest of us, well, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. It's no chance for us. We, well, wait a minute. What about Moses? Age 40, murders an overseer. Age 80, what's he say? Take my name out of the book for these people. I'll give my life for them. Paul, Damascus Road, prior to Damascus Road, is imprisoning and stoning and beating. After Damascus Road, I'd gladly give my life that my fellow Jews could. Something's changed in his heart. Have we had a change of heart that we love other people enough we give our life for them? That's not, it's not a natural willpower thing. You can't go, I will myself to love you that much. But we can choose to put our will in Christ's hands, and he can change our hearts to love people that much. Yes? Are you making a difference then between making mistakes and sinning? Ah, so this is the question, isn't it? See, thank you for asking this. That's beautiful. What's the difference between living a life free from sin and making mistakes? Is there a difference? The heart changes. What's the heart? Even the man who's converted, who's given his heart to Christ, from the moment of conversion on, what's his heart want to do? What's right. What's his heart? If you're converted to Christ, you love him, you surrendered him, you're on his side. The law has been written on your heart and mind as it says it's a new covenant experience. What does your heart want to do from that moment on? How does your heart want to live? Do you want to live in harmony with Christ and, and, and love others more than Or do you want to live for self when you're converted? What's your heart want to do? Okay. But does that mean all your old habit patterns? your conditioned responses, your neural circuits that you've developed over 50 years of sinful living have been immediately uh, reprogrammed and reprocessed? Your appetites have been changed instantly. Your habit patterns of cursing because you were in the Navy for 37 years. Um, You know, all these things are instantly gone. (laughs) Or does your heart say, I don't want to be that way anymore? And every time an old habit pattern, a conditioned response, a reflexive impulse causes an old behavior to happen, your heart goes, oh, this is not the man I want to be anymore. I'm sick over this. Lord, who will save me from this body of death? What wretched man am I? And so your heart is in harmony with God, but your brain still has some rewiring to do. Mm-hmm. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. Now the difference between that and the unconverted person is the unconverted person either never even realizes there's a problem with what they're doing and has no desire to change, or if they do have any type of awareness that it was wrong, they justify, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Didn't put her in the garden, I would have never taken it. I'm righteous. She's the sinful one. <laughs> there's no, there's, I didn't do anything wrong. You see? Self-justification, self-defense, sacrifice somebody else to protect self. That's an unconverted heart. That's what Sister White tells us is the trend of our life. Yeah, and see, what happens with a legal model, a legal model, it's about behavior. Wait a minute. I cursed. I, I, my, I was nailing something at my house. A th- hammer hit my thumb, and a curse word came out of my mouth. Oh, no, there's a sin written down in my record book in heaven, and I'm going to be punished for that unless I get down right now and ask Jesus to forgive me for my sin. And he writes his forgiveness next to my name. No. When you hit your hammer, hit your thumb with the hammer, and you curse and you're converted, and you go, oh, see, look how pitiful my conditioned responses are, that I have those things in my neural circuitry that I don't even want to be there anymore, but they're still there. Lord, I am a sick and sinful human being. That's the freedom. That's exactly right. And so what does the Lord look at? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, guys. But we have got this whole system where we have substituted heart for the outward appearance and, mo- and the behaviors. And that's not it. Yes, back here. Okay, so this verse in uh, 1 John uh, chapter 3 and verse 9, whoever has been born of God 
does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Should that say then, and he has not the desire to sin? No, it depends on how you define sin. Sin is an action of the heart, not an action of the behavior. Sin is an action of the heart. If somebody's sleepwalking, and they drive and get in a wreck and hit somebody, which happens, are they sinning? Why? It's not their desire to sin. How about, how about somebody, I mean, I could go through examples all day. Where, uh, for the example I just gave you, here's a good one. How about Rahab when she lied? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Sinning or not sinning? Well, where is she in Hebrews? You see, Rahab lied in faith. How did she lie in faith? <laughs> she did. You put yourself in Rahab's shoes. Where is Rahab living? Okay, let's put it this way. Let's make it a little bit closer to home. Let's put it a little closer to home. Rahab's living in Nazi Germany. And she's German. And some Jewish spies come to hide in her house. She doesn't know God. She's never heard anything. Other than she's heard some rumors through travelers and merchants that this group of people were delivered by power out of Pharaoh's hand. That's all she's heard. She's heard the rumors about how they were slaves in Egypt, but they're no longer slaves. She's heard these rumors. And the Nazis, the SS, come knocking on her door, and, and, and she's hiding them upstairs. Now, does she lie in faith? Because she doesn't, uh, or does she lie because she doesn't believe? She doesn't believe these are God's people. She doesn't believe this is the true God, and that's why she lies. Or she does believe these are God's people, and she does believe this is the true God. That's why she lies. Well, she believed that those, that she heard the rumors and everything, but she believed also that these people were coming, and that they had destroyed destroy these other people. So and who so did she, she believe? It was confirmed to her that these people kept, was going to destroy them. Yes, so, so, so actually she, rather than be destroyed herself and die with them. But did she have to make a decision on who she was going to believe? And how much of God's character did she know? She knew something from the stories coming out of Egypt. God is powerful. The God of the Jews is powerful. What else did she know about God? So her basic decision and where she was in her journey was this. I'm either going to side with God or I'm going to oppose him. That's all I know. Okay? Her heart chose to put herself on God's side. Her behavior was still very immature. So a metaphor I like to give is, think about you're out gardening in your garden, then you're weeding weeds in your tomato garden, and your three-year-old comes up behind you with a big smile and says, help mommy, and pulls up a tomato plant. (laughs) Do you punish them? Do you spank them? Is this a disobedient and rebellious and unruly child? Did they, how was their performance? Good performance? Bad performance? Really? They pulled up a tomato plant. Not a, no, the performance wasn't so good. How about you send your 14-year-old out there to weed, and the 14-year-old only pulls weeds, but the whole time they're cursing you under their breath. Can't play my game station. Can't believe my parents sent me out here. This is ridiculous. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. But they only pull weeds. Who's the obedient one? The one who pulls the weeds or the one who pulls the tomato plant? 
See, this is the problem we get into when we focus on behavior. Rahab was the three-year-old. She pulled the tomato plant, but her heart wanted to pull the weeds. She didn't know what the weeds were yet. It's the difference, yes. Could she have been lying out of self-preservation? She could have been, but then Hebrews wouldn't have her in the hall of faith. Because Hebrews has her in the hall of faith, that gives us an indication that her heart was for God, not for herself. If she wasn't in the hall of faith, then we might draw that conclusion. Yes. She took on a great risk by by hiding the Jewish spies, which would have been other-centered love. And further, she ends up in the lineage of Christ, which is another evidence that her heart was for God, not against him. So this is how uh, we make the difference between the heart motive and the specific behavior. When your behavior is oriented, you end up with all types of false guilt and insecurity. It becomes more navel-gazing, more fear-ridden. Uh, I could tell you story after story of patients who come to see me who are, are, are burdened because of some mistake they've made in the past, some, some thing they've done, and they're worried that maybe God can't forgive them for it and all this kind of stuff. Let's go on our lesson because there's several other good things in our lesson. We're studying Galatians uh, 5, 1 through 15, and this is what you look in your Bible, verses 13 through 16 says. This is out of the NIV version. You, we're talking about this ability to live victorious over sin in your life. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, God's designed for life. He built us to operate on the law of love, which is law of giving. There is no law against love. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, hmm, what's that talking about? <laughs> Watch out. You will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Do you believe that's true, or is that not true? If you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the What's that mean? Does that mean you live victoriously in your life? Or does that mean you continue to sin up till Christ comes? It means you live victorious. It doesn't mean you may not make mistakes, but it means that when you do, your heart is not in it. That's the difference. Your heart is on God's side. Your heart is grieved when you make a mistake. And your heart wants to learn from experience, so you're less likely to make those same mistakes again in the future. Yes? We have a good example with the Special Olympics. You know, these kids out there stumbling around and, and uh, parents are all supportive and cheering them on. And basically, we're all born mentally retarded, cerebral palsy. Something's wrong with us from our genetics. We make all these mistakes. And we can't live a perfect life, but the heart's right. I like it. I like it very much. Sunday's lesson, top verse, memory verse says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What do you hear? What do you hear being said in this verse? Hold your ground. Don't waver. Don't move. Don't fall back. You're free. Free to love. Free to work. Free from working to cure yourself. Think that through. You are free from working to cure yourself. Free from insecurity and fear. Free from the fear that God is seeking to punish you. Free from distortions of Satan's lies about God. Don't fall back into believing your remedy in Christ is insufficient. Or God requires some work on your part to cure you. Or that if you don't accept Christ, God will punish and torture you. Don't fall back into this. Don't let your minds be enslaved with falsehoods, doubts, and distortions about lies, about lies about God. Last two paragraphs, uh, Paul says, For freedom, 
Christ has set us free, may suggest that he has another metaphor in mind here. The wording of this phrase is similar to the formula used in the sacred freeing of slaves. Because slaves had no legal rights, it was supposed that a deity could purchase their freedom, and in return, the slave, though, although really free, would legally belong to the god. Of course, in actual practice, the process was fiction. It was the slave who paid the money to the te- into the temple treasury for his or her freedom. Consider, for example, the formula used in one of the n- nearly 1,000 inscriptions found in the temple of Pythian Apollo at Delphi that date from 201 B.C. to 100 A.D. For freedom, Apollo, the Pythian, uh, bought from Sobisus, uh, no, Sosibus of Amphissa a female slave whose name was Nicaea. The purchase, however... Nicaea has committed unto Apollo for freedom. This formula shares a basic similarity with Paul's terminology, but there's a fundamental difference. In Paul's metaphor, no fiction is involved. We did not provide the purchase price ourselves. The price was far too high for us. We were powerless to save ourselves, uh, but Jesus stepped in and did for us what we could not do, at least not without forfeiting our lives. He paid the penalty for our sins, thus freeing us from condemnation. Paul's phraseology for freedom, Christ has set us free. Was he using this phraseology, as the lesson is suggesting, to communicate to us that our freedom is a legal price paid to an imperial authority to purchase our freedom from a slave master? That's what the lesson is suggesting. Look at the analogy that they gave. That this was fiction when a slave paid their price to a deity to be freed from a slave master. But it's literal when Christ pays the legal price to the heavenly slave master to set us free. That's what they're saying. I don't know if you picked it up, but it's a lie. And it's ugly. This idea keeps millions of Christians in bondage. This idea, communicated here, binds Christianity and slavery. See, we are enslaved not primarily by our condition, but by a God who has imprisoned us on a cosmic death row and is threatening to execute us for eternity if someone doesn't pay our death penalty to the universal executioner. That's what they're teaching. What what, what enslaves us? We're on death row in the heavenly court. And that heavenly judge needs a payment to pay our debt. And if somebody doesn't pay it, he's going to kill us. That idea enslaves millions. What's the truth? What actually enslaves us? Is it God's government that enslaves us? Is it Satan that's enslaving us? Or are we enslaved by our own carnal natures and the lies that we believe about God? Then what is it that sets us free? Jesus said, the truth will set you free. The truth about God, which destroys lies in our minds, wins us back to trust and sets us free. This is the war we wage, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Demolishing a stronghold, that's something that holds us. Something that holds us strongly. We're going to demolish it. We're going to be set free. What do we demolish? We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. What holds us in slavery are all these distorted things we teach about God and our carnal nature. And so Christ came to reveal the truth, to set us free, and to provide a new humanity, cleansed and perfected back to God's original design, which was achieved by and in Christ. And Paul wants his audience to understand that they are really free, just as a slave is really free, free from what enslaves them. The bondage of a literal slave, now get your mind around these two things, the bondage of a literal slave 
is the imposed rules of slavery by the government of that society. Such slavery is arbitrary and has an arbitrary law which enforces it. We are enslaved not by an arbitrary God with an arbitrary law. We are enslaved by our condition of sinfulness. And it is our inability to heal ourselves and put ourselves back in harmony with God's design as he designed life to operate that enslaves us. The people in Paul's day were familiar with slavery and what it would mean to, for a slave to be free. Thus he uses this as an example, but it's not to be taken overly literal. God's government is not like human governments. And thus, the, thus to concretize this example distorts the divine government which is exactly what has happened with this imperialism idea that's infected Christianity when, when Constantine converted. The idea of an imperial dictator who imposes law upon his creatures and then enforces that law on threat of death. This is imperialism that, that infected Christianity when Constantine converted. And we're still trying to free ourselves from it because we're still slaves to it. Thoughts about that? It's quite provocative what I've said. When Constantine took over and the, the church was more visible than invisible. Uh, most of the, the whole population got their information from the government or from the church that he set up. Okay, and that was the only visible church, and the rest the, uh, the real church was being persecuted and had to go underground. Therefore, when we were trying to come out of, of uh, it's kind of like the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. When they still had a lot of the customs or the t- things that they had learned in Egypt, and God had to get them and put them in the wilderness and try to, you know, teach them his way. And what we have done in the New Testament church, that Satan joined the church, changed it, and now God is trying to get us back. And we've been working to come out of those dark ages for, for a long time. And we're still trying. Yes, we are. And there's a final message to lighten the world for the for the second coming, and you can find it described in a book called Christ Object Lessons. I believe it's on page 415. And it says, the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's coming is the truth about God's character of love. That's the message we need to take. We can't take that message when we're giving Imperial Rome's view of what God looks like. That's not what God looks like. Saw a hand over there in the back somewhere? Okay. If you look more of sin as a wage, as more as a penalty, it makes this a little more clear because uh, it's a result of, your, of what you do. It's not a penalty imposed on you. It's a result of your condition. That's what the scripture would foresee. Right. The wages of sin right. is death. Yeah. Monday's lesson, second paragraph, it says, This pattern of, of a statement of fact followed by an exhortation is typical in Paul's letter. For example, Paul makes several indi- indicative statements in Romans 6 about facts of our condition in Christ, such as, We know that our old self was crucified with him, On the basis of this fact, Paul can then issue the imperative exhortation, therefore do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies. Question, what does it mean we know that our old self was crucified with him? What does it mean in practical terms? What was crucified with Christ? Our condition. Our condition. Does it mean that all our recorded sins, past, present, and future, relate upon Christ at the cross and judicial punishment was inflicted upon him to punish him in the place of all humans to exact retribution and assuage God's wrath? Is that what happened at the cross? That our old self was crucified with him? Is that what it meant? Or does it mean that Christ took upon himself our our sinful condition and at the cross Christ destroyed that terminal condition and purified humanity back into God's perfect design? 
This is, by the way, what was taught by the early church up until Constantine. Justin, as well as uh, Irenaeus, both taught that the purpose of Christ's coming was to reveal the truth, destroy Satan, and restore in himself God's per- perfect humanity designed in Adam. That was taught for the first two centuries after Christ. This week, one of our online class members, Eric Hillis, emailed me a Hebrew literal translation of Isaiah 53. And when I read this, it's going to be kind of like awkward sounding because it's a literal translation, which means it doesn't have all the you know, verbs and things proper. But you'll get the sense of it. This is verse 3 through 6. One being despised and shunned of men, a man of pain, and one being known of illness. And I've got the uh, website where you can go get this little translation. It, the web address is in here where you can get this. And, we con- uh, and, and, and as we concealed our faces from him, one being despised, and we did not account him. Surely our illnesses he carried, and he was burdened with our pains, and we accounted him, one being touched, one being smitten of God, and one being humbled. And then the, the last two verses. And he, from being wounded from our being wounded from our transgressions, and from being crushed from our depravities, the discipline of our well being was upon him. And the welts of him, he is healed to us. Think through what the Hebrew is saying, the literal translation. It was our sickness that crushed him, our condition that punished him. And yet we accounted it or considered that God was doing this to him. Which is exactly what Christianity teaches today. It was God that punished him at the cross. In our own theology departments around the world, in our universities, professors, I've got writings from the Review, from Ministry Magazine, from various professors that teach that God crucified or executed his son at the cross in order to be just. Why would they say that? Because they bought bought Imperial Rome's idea of what God is like. In the fourth paragraph, it states, the contest suggests that Paul is referring to freedom from the bondage and condemnation of a law-driven Christianity. I think that, and that's right. Paul is suggesting or referring that freedom from bondage and the condemnation of a law-driven Christianity. Do we struggle with such problems today of, of being involved in a law-driven Christianity? How does a law-driven Christianity manifest itself today? Believing you can't go to church if you worship on the wrong day of the week. I can't go to heaven if you go to church on the wrong day of the week. Believing you can't be saved, but um, believing you can be saved by eating the right foods, or can be lost by eating the wrong foods. Giving tithe in order to get blessing and make more money. Believing your legal penalty for sin has been paid by Christ's blood. Believing the records of your sins are being erased out of heaven when you accept that legal payment. Any other ways we are burdened by a law-driven Christianity? What is supposed to drive our Christianity? Love. The law of love. Greater love is no man that he give, which is giving, beneficence, loving others more than self, self-sacrifice. That's the driver of Christianity. Tuesday's lesson, first sentence, second paragraph says, the first consequence of trying to earn God's favors 
God's favor by submitting to circumcision is that it obligates the person to keep the entire law. They're talking about Paul, of course, coming to the Galatians, criticizing those who are trying to get them to go back under the ordinances of the circumcision and the Jewish system, and says the first consequence to trying to earn God's favor by submitting to circumcision is that it obligates the person to keep the entire law. What ideas are being connoted here? It's very profound. Very profound. Are there problems with this concept as the lesson puts it? Well, questions that came to my mind would be something like this. Did we earn God's favor by putting his son on the cross and offering God his son's blood? Is that how we earn God's favor? Wasn't that what's taught? We present him his son's blood, and then we get forgiveness, don't we? We get favor from God with his son's blood in our possession. How else would we get his son's blood unless we kill him? Isn't that common penal substitution Christianity? We had to kill a son and give him his son's blood so we could get his favor. Do you have a problem with that? There's a serious problem with that. But nobody seems to blink an eye at it when it's said in more, you know, delicate ways. In that case, then it wouldn't have been a bad idea for Herod just to have killed baby Jesus. Then his blood would have been spilled, and that'd be it. Yes, if you have that model, then that's exactly right. The Jews did the right thing by killing him. If you have that model. In fact, I've heard Christians say it was necessary. In fact, if the, if the Jews wouldn't have had him put on the cross, he would have had to go into the temple and the high priest would have had to slay him on the altar. I've heard them, people say it because he had, to ha- he had to be killed in order for his blood to be presented to the Father. You haven't heard this said? I have. Can we? Think about the implication here, guys. Can we earn God's favor? No. We never lost God's favor. Thank you. Did Christ die in order to earn God's favor? No. no, he did not. Christ was a manifestation of God's favor, not something to earn God's favor. God's favor never has to be earned because we never lost it. Yes? I've heard it shared that if, if the Jewish nation had accepted Jesus, that he would have gone through the Garden of Gethsemane experience, and then he would have gone into the temple and, you know, and had this huge supportive crowd, and whether he would have, I'm not sure exactly how what would have happened next, but, you know, he had the whole Jewish nation. Sacrifice him and put his blood in the altar. I'm not sure so much that, if he'd gone in, what would have happened next? But if he had gone through, went through in Garden of Gethsemane, and, and experienced the second death in that realm, and the whole the disciples that saw it, whatever, how, how do you think it should have played out? I've heard something similar. He would have gone to the temple, been a supportive audience and all that, and whether... How the knife dropped or how he would have died, that I don't have fully clear in my mind, but if he'd gone through the Gethsemane experience and the Jewish nation had accepted him, they would have taken the gospel of the world and how he would have died and resurrected, that is interesting. The whole Jewish nation would be ready for him to be resurrected. Do you think he still would have died or what's your thoughts on that? Uh, if the Jewish nation accepted him, how should it have played out? Well, they didn't, did they? No, but they had. What should have, what should have played out, if you have any idea? What happened is exactly what happened. But what should have happened? What should have happened uh, is that Christ won the victory on our behalf that we couldn't win, which is exactly what he did. He perfected humanity. He destroyed the carnal nature in his own, in his own personhood. He needed no physical pain to die before. He didn't need, to, he didn't need the physical torture. So I think the Romans or someone else, that Satan wasn't going to allow that to pass. He would have had his agencies do it, whether it was the Jewish nation or somebody. Somebody would have come in to, to crush because Satan was, was behind the thing. There was no chance that Satan was going to side up with Christ there. Whether some Jewish humans did or not, 
Satan wasn't going to, and there would be other humans at his disposal to do his bidding. There are some other explanations for why he had to die. The legal system is not the only one, right? Uh, we have a great explanation why he had to die. I well, think there's, there's also the explanation that it was the one of the ways in which the total character of Satan was displayed to the universe. That's part of the whole process. The, purpose, the purposes were, as I understand it, one, to reveal the truth. Now, that truth is all-encompassing. The truth about God's character, the truth about the nature and character of sin, the exposing of Satan as a liar and fraud. All those, every bit of truth that is exposed was wrapped up in there. The truth about what happens when you worship God from a legal system rather than having a heart changed. What, what do you become? The Jewish nation, keeping the rules, became God's enemy, exposed that it's not a matter of keeping external rules, but a heart. So lots of truth was revealed, exactly. So that was part of it, but it's wrapped up in the, the first aspect of he had to reveal truth to destroy lies. So all truth was revealed in that. Second aspect was that wasn't enough, though. Revealing truth would win us to trust, but we still have a condition which, if unremedied, is terminal. And so Christ had to provide remedy for that very condition. And he did that in his humanity. As a human being, uh, as, as I've said before, Christ is a unique being in all creation history. Adam was created out of the dust of the earth, perfect and sinless. Eve taken from the side, perfect and sinless. Did we come into the world that way? Did Christ's humanity come into the world that way? No. The Bible says we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity with a sinful mother and a sinful father. That's how we came into the world. Did Christ's humanity come into the world that way? No. Christ didn't come in like Adam, he didn't come in like Eve, and he didn't come in like you and me. He had a sinful mother, but he had perfect God for his father. So in Christ is a unique, one-of-a-kind being who is fully human and fully God. And in the brain of Jesus Christ, he could experience the full weight of temptation of sin that you and I experience, but he has a mind that is perfectly in harmony, in character, perfectly in harmony with his father, so he can overcome that internal temptation. And this is when you put the scriptures together, it all says in James chapter 1 that no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Hebrews 2 says he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Are both of those true? Are we tempted by our own evil desires? Was Christ tempted in every way, just like we are? That means by necessity, he had a humanity that tempted him from within. And you look in Gethsemane for the evidence. At Gethsemane, did Christ have powerful human emotions that tempted him to do what? Save himself. And that's the core of it. Do I give myself in love for others, or do I act in self-interest to save self? And at Gethsemane, every time the temptation came, which was so agonizing that he felt as if he was going to die, he chose to, no one can take my life, I will give it freely. And all the way through the cross, say, you saved others, come down off the cross, save yourself and we'll believe in you. Okay? It was a temptation now, it was a little inducement. Not only can he save himself, but he can have followers. little inducement here. Still, he won't act in self-interest, which is Satan's allegation against God, that God is selfish. So he reveals the truth about God's character while simultaneously, by the exercise of his human brain, he is destroying that infection within us that causes us to act in self-interest. In Christ at the cross, why did he not exercise power to save himself? Because if he would have at any point along death approach, if he stops death from taking him, he saves self. He doesn't destroy selfishness. And so at the cross, he destroyed that very element within humanity that Adam put there by sinning, and thus he rose on the third day, which was inevitable, because the law of love is the law of life, which he perfectly put in humanity, in his own humanity. Thus he rose again in a humanity cleansed, that he cleansed in himself. And thus, it says in Hebrews 5.8, thus, um, 
when, when he is, um, wow, Hebrews 5.8 says, and once he is made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect. So once he cleansed humanity, then he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. And then he said to his disciples, it's expedient that I leave, because if I don't leave, the comforter won't come. And when he comes, he's going to take all that's mine and make it known to you. What's he going to take? He's going to take the perfect character of Christ that he achieved, the remedy, and reproduce it in us. And thus you read in Desire of Ages 761, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will trust him. He builds up the human character in the similitude of the divine. Thus he can be the just and the justifier of him who trusts in Jesus. By building up the human character in the similitude of the divine. We, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. We have the mind of Christ. We have the law of love written on the heart and mind. I mean, all the metaphors are the same. It's a real, literal, healing, transformational process through the victory of what Christ achieved for us. All this other legal stuff is a side rail and a derail because it gets us to focus on something that happens outside of us, an investigation in heaven where our record books are going over and we hope the blood and forgiveness is stamped by those books up there. It's a side rail to derail. The healing power of Christ. Sin happens in sinners, not in record books. And the healing power of God happens in sinners, not in record books. That's where the work is being done. Wow, I've gotten really derailed here, didn't I? Okay, um, Paul. Um, so do we expect that uh, we can live in harmony? That Do we not expect to live in harmony with God's law? Um, are we not obligated to keep God's law? Paul said, you know, the lessons criticizes that um, those who uh, pursue circumcision will be obligated to keep the whole law. Are we not obligated to keep the whole law? Privileged to keep the whole law. Oh, okay. Here, here's my paraphrase of Galatians 5, 2 through 4. Now listen carefully. I, Paul, want to make this extremely clear. If you include circumcision as a necessary element in the remedy to sin and selfishness, then you dispel Christ and nullify the true remedy he brought. I say it again. Any man who is circumcised as a means of healing from selfishness and sin is choosing a course without Christ's free remedy and thus is required to heal and cure himself. Those of you who are trying to be healed and set right with God by observing a set of rules or rituals have rejected Christ and his methods which heal. You have rejected God's graciousness and accepted a false remedy. Isn't that what's being said? Was that method valid before Christ came? Of course. That's exactly how Moses ended up in heaven. Now, some people get real confused. Well, how can that be? Christ hasn't achieved it yet. So how can Moses partake of it yet? My way of understanding this is that God lives outside time. He's not restrained in a linear existence as we are. So once Christ has achieved what he's achieved and ascended to heaven, which he did in our linear time, he came down, became incarnate, put himself into a linear existence. And once he achieved it and ascended back to heaven, that remedy exists for God to apply anywhere God exists. And God exists outside of linear existence. So he could apply it past, present, and future. But Christ had to achieve it. 
And also we look back at Enoch and where he walked with God, and that is why he went. Right, but he was still, Enoch walked with God and went to heaven because he experienced the character of Christ reproduced within that Christ achieved for him thousands of years later in a linear existence. I've got to jump ahead. First paragraph says, How should a person who is not saved by works of the law live? Well, how should a person with pneumonia, who is not cured by working, but by taking antibiotics, live? Should the person who is not cured by, taking, uh, by working, but by taking antibiotics, should they smoke? Should they aspirate food? That means put, suck food into their lungs. Should they breathe asbestos-infected air? If they are healed by antibiotics and are and they are not, if they are healed by antibiotics and they are not taking their antibiotics, excuse me, and they are taking their antibiotics, why shouldn't they smoke, aspirate food, and breathe asbestos-infected air? Because it works against the healing, right? So when we're saved by grace, by God working in us, why should we stop licentious living, bigotry, hatred, distorted beliefs about God? Why should we rid ourselves of these things? Because by ridding ourselves of these things, we, we, we cleanse and heal ourselves? No, because every one of these things works against what the Holy Spirit's doing in us and makes it harder for him to heal us. We get more deepened habit patterns, more self-centered, more distortions in our thinking. We enslave ourselves deeper and deeper into a problem. That's why. But it doesn't heal us to stop doing those. Christ heals us. And this is one of the major problems we have with penal substitution thinking that so many young people leave our church. I'm going to point out to you why. They leave our church uh, with this type of theology. Um, here's a couple of questions that were submitted to me by College Academy students regarding sex. If God will forgive you, then why can't you have sex before marriage? Here's another question. If you plan on marrying someone after being with them for a very long time, is it sinful to have sex? And is God angry with us, even though you love that person beyond description? And if you pray together and love God, then how is it wrong? What is revealed by these questions? What concept do these high school students have of God and sin? Why do they think sin is wrong? Because it either breaks God's law or gets God angry. At and that us. is an arbitrary guidance about sex that God left, that God gave us. Exactly. If if that is the problem, then why don't then then what we need to do is we don't need to modify our lives. We need to fix God. You see. And how do we fix God? Well, we get someone to pay a penalty for us. We appease him with his son's blood and while we go on living in sin. This is what penal substitution theology leads to. So how do we answer their questions? Is the sin problem a problem with God's attitude or our condition? If your parents will for kids, if your parents will forgive you for not brushing your teeth, why brush them? Really, they'll forgive you? Why brush them? Okay, I have a patient who prays regularly for healthy lungs but smokes a pack of cigarettes a day. How could smoking be wrong if she prays? I'm not angry with my patient for her smoking. Is my anger the problem? Prayer doesn't void our choices or change God's laws that he built his universe to operate upon. Okay? God's forgiveness does not prevent the damage of ongoing violations of his design template for life. This is the real problem. Okay? 
And instead, we've projected it back onto God that he's the imposer of penalties. The problem is he's offended. He's angry. He's wrathful. He's got to punish in order to be just. So the problem is with him. Um, Thursday's lesson. I've got one more thing I want to hit before we end. Uh, Bottom, last paragraph, it says, Thursday's lesson. Although... It is a quotation from Leviticus. Leviticus, Paul's statement in Galatians is ultimately rooted in Jesus' use of Leviticus 19.18, which basically, you know, the, the, well, you'll hear it here. However, was not only the Jewish teacher to refer to Leviticus 19.18 as a summary of the whole law, Rabbi Hillel, uh, who lived about a generation before Jesus, said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole law. But Jesus' perspective radically was different. Not only is it a more positive, but it also demonstrates that law and love are not incompatible. Without love, the law is empty and cold, and without the law, the love has no direction. Do you hear um, a gross misunderstanding here? Mm-hmm. Separation between what law is and what love is. Exactly. They're separating law and love. What is God's law? The the scriptures and and Ellen White both are completely clear on this. The love is the fulfillment of the law. God's law is the law of love. And the statement that the law and love are are not incompatible, think through the meaning, law and love are not incompatible, is just like saying breathing and life are not incompatible. That's what it's saying. And it's stupid. It's foolish. It makes no sense when you actually understand God's law. The reality is that the law is love, and until Christians realize that God's law is love, the design principle upon which he built his life, we struggle with a confused theology and distort the picture of God. Last, and you see the example in the pink at the bottom. What's easier and why? To love others or simply obey the Ten Commandments? <laughs> can you love others without obeying the Ten Commandments? And can you obey the Ten Commandments without loving others? It's not possible. Love is fulfillment of the law. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are love. And as you gave of yourself to design, build, and create your universe, you have built all things to run in harmony with your nature. Open our minds to understand the reality of your kingdom, the laws upon which you have designed your universe to run. Help us see how selfishness and sin or or lawlessness, being outside of your design protocols, and how when that happens, nothing but pain, suffering, and death can occur. And how you loved us so much that you sent your son to do for us, which we could not do for ourselves, to put the human being back in perfect harmony with the way you built mankind to run. We open our hearts now and ask for your spirit to take all that Christ has achieved to write your law of love into our hearts and minds, renewing, transforming, and recreating us, freeing us from the distortions that bind us and the habits that enslave us, that we can go out and live lives of love in, your, in this world. As a witness for you, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.